Welcome to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. Mosaic Church seeks to engage the modern age with the historic Christian faith. If you don't have a home church, please don't use this podcast as a substitute for being a member of a local community of faith. Whether you call Mosaic your home or not, we hope that you find this sermon convicting and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Here's our lead pastor, Pastor Greg Brown, with this week's sermon. We're going to be talking a lot about unity. Um, and I, I kind of want to give you an idea of what, I, what I'm talking about. Unity and diversity, uh, both and. Um, unity and diversity are both required for good music. I'm a big music fan. Brandon is also a big music fan. He just, we've talked about this just this morning. He's like, I don't play or sing, but he likes to listen. I, I you know, yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, I love music. Uh, I, actually, I didn't grow up in a musical family. My dad played guitar a little bit, uh, but uh, I really, you know, didn't grow up listening to a lot of music, but I developed a love for it. And it requires both unity and diversity in order to be a good song, at least in my personal opinion. What am I talking about? Well, uh, unity is required insofar as the musicians must kind of understand the general theme of the tune. They have to be playing in the same key, the same basic pitch or, or whatever, however you want to like, understand that, but uh, the same key and the, the same rhythm. I mean, of course, there are polyrhythms. If you're, a, if you're a music theory guy, you can be like, well, they, they can play multiple rhythms at the same time, but they have to go together, and so there's unity there. You get these guys who are jazz musicians, and they're improvising the entire time, and yet there is always a structure to the song. There is unity. They've, they've communicated with each other. It's going to be this chord progression, and we're going to walk through this, and we're going to play little solos over top of it. And so there's unity there. They are together. But there's also diversity. If you had all the same instrument playing every song, it'd get real boring. I can attest to this because I've watched the YouTube videos where these guys take these orchestral movements, and they play all of them on guitar, Right? I, like, I don't know if you've ever seen the, the video of uh, the guy playing uh, the, the Imperial March from Star Wars on like 15 different guitars, like different tracks, playing all the individual little pieces. It's a cool gimmick, all right? But it's not good music. It's much better when you have the, the cellos and you have the horns and you have the, the different pieces of that, that orchestra working together in unity and yet with diversity. Unity in the church is a lot like this. Unity in the church is around core doctrines. Chapter 1 of 1 Timothy really gets into that idea of fighting false gospels, having that core doctrine. But we also need diversity in the church. We need to use our varying gifts and roles for the good of the church. Well, how can we adopt that unity? How can we have that unity then? Well, I talked about it a couple of weeks ago, and I think it applies here. We need to adopt an attitude of Godwardness. Okay, so Paul, throughout his, his letter here to Timothy, has this view of everything is unto God. It is before God. He's always got God as his focus. Everything else is driven from that. And so he has this Godward sort of attitude. That's my, that's my word. That's not a real word, by the way. You can write that in your notes, Greg Brown. In the first chapter, uh, we, we really f- see this principle at work 
as, as, again, Paul flatly denies these false gospels. And just at the end of that chapter, Paul makes a final plea to Timothy and issues a, a final judgment or indictment against false preachers before moving on to his next point. And I think it's good that we, we kind of stopped short of uh, the end of, of chapter one last week and that we get to read this today to be reminded of the severity of the punishment if we wander from core doctrine. First, and I'm not going to ask you guys to stand yet because we're not at our core verse yet, but I'm just going to read this to you. 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20 says this, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophets that the prophets previously made about you, there we go, that by them that you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and, have a, and a good conscience by rejecting this, he says, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. That's heavy stuff, right? What Paul is saying here is if you do not hold to core Christian doctrine and you attempt to say that this is, this is good, you have bigger problems than just teaching the wrong stuff or it being a minor mistake. If you're preaching something that you know to be wrong and you're twisting the scriptures because you don't like what it says, there is great difficulty coming for you. You cannot call yourself unified. If we compromise these core doctrines, such as the gospel itself, then we cannot hope to have a unified church. A lot of people want to say, well, unity requires us to give on some of these things. And it's true, on secondary matters, we may need to have varying degrees of fellowship because we disagree or agree on these secondary matters. But on the core stuff, man, you don't have that right, you cannot have unity, and you should not have unity. This is a good reminder as we head into chapter two and beyond, because the, the faith handed down to us by the prophets and the, and, and, the, uh, and the apostles must be held firmly and with a good and clear conscience. And we can't just confess it with our mouths only. We can't just look at the scriptures and go, yeah, I believe, a lot of people have said this, I believe the Bible. It's a wonderful confession. I'm not saying that's a bad confession to make, okay? But saying I believe the Bible isn't quite specific enough on some particular issues. We've seen this. Jehovah's Witnesses, the Roman Catholic Church, take your pick of Mormons, whatever, right? Like, take your pick. They believe the Bible, quote unquote. They would say, I believe the Bible, but... They are not Christian. They are not Christian. And so we must hold firmly to everything that the Bible preaches and teaches to us. We have to have that core of sound doctrine, and we have to have unity around that. A gospel church that has sound doctrine at its core, held with a clear conscience, that's going to lead to God-glorifying action. This is my favorite phrase. Ready for theological words? All right, here we go. There's only like one or two of these in the sermon today, I promise. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Right belief leads to right practice. If we get this stuff right and we apply it to how we work in this world, we're going to be in good shape. 
if we get this wrong, everything is pointless. We've got to have orthodoxy so that it can lead us to orthopraxy. And Paul is, is really passionate about this, obviously, in chapter 1. But he continues from this point in chapter 1 of sort of thinking about if, if, if you had to kind of assign a, a, an idea to chapter 1, it's sort of teaching before God, okay? An idea of Godwardness in teaching, making sure that your doctrine is sound. Paul then pushes off of that, and he's, he begins to apply it to the life of the church as we come together on a given Sunday or come together as the church whenever we worship. If first, if first Timothy chapter 1 is teaching before God, then First Timothy chapter 2 is gathering before God. See, Paul just begins to address these sort of potential and actual issues of the church at Ephesus. They had some real problems, and he needed to address some of this because what was happening was that they might have even had right belief, though it was being distorted. But some of them might have had right belief, but they weren't pushing into right action. And so he's like, let me correct all the problems at once. Let me get you to a solid foundation in the gospel, and then let me help you to push into right practice. Let me show you what this looks like. It's a wonderful thing that often happens within Scripture, especially in the Pauline epistles. You get a solid foundation of theology, and then you get another sort of, here's a picture of what it might look like to live this out, right? So you, you start with the core doctrine, and you go, okay, now I can live it. And that's really what 1 Timothy chapter 2 is about. It begins with this idea of unity around the gospel, leading us to pray for all kinds of people because the gospel is for all kinds of people. Put simply, we have unity in God despite our diversity. And then he moves on in the latter part of chapter two in order to ensure that the church is founded upon proper order. And he gets at sort of some of the creative order uh, that's happening here as well. And so I, it, it continues as well, this, uh, this idea of, of gathering before God into chapter 3, which we're going to cover next week, uh, regarding uh, overseers, also known as pastors and elders uh, and deacons. But for this week, we're really just talking about how we engage one another, how we have unity as we meet together in the context of corporate worship. It's really what we're at. And so today, our core passage, I, I'm going to actually read all of chapter 2 at some point throughout the course of the, the sermon today, but I don't want you guys to have to stand for 15 verses straight today. Um, I don't think it's absolutely necessary, and I want to focus in. I want you guys to, to, to see a foundation here before we move on to kind of picking it apart verse by verse. So why don't you guys stand with me? We're going to read First uh, Timothy 2, 5 through 6, just two verses, and it says this. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. May God bless the reading of his word. Lord God, we come to you in prayer this morning, asking you to help us to see the unity that we have in you. That, Lord God, this idea that we have one God and one mediator, despite being all sorts of different kinds of people, Lord God, I pray that you would help us to be drawn into worship of you because of that. 
I pray that you would unify this church. That Lord, even as we are different, let us also be unified in how you allow us to work together. Lord, let us all glorify you with our lives. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. You guys can be seated. So this is a core principle of the whole sort of passage here. This idea of one God, one mediator. And everything else is sort of driven off of that. But we're going to start at the beginning and start working our way through. And like, we might not go completely verse by verse, but man, we're, we're going section by section at least. Um, so, you know, buckle in. I don't think it's going to be a long one, but you never know. That's right, Brittany. I saw you. It's a small church. I can call people out. Now you're on the podcast. (laughs) Verses one and two of this chapter says, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a quiet, a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is a really simple, straightforward couple of verses. We're not going to spend a ton of time here, but I want you to see the primacy, like the, the, the high priority that Paul gives to prayer as he addresses right practice, pushing off of right doctrine. He says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. First of all, even, I don't think he's saying first of all, as in like, well, this is kind of the first thing I thought up. I think he's saying, no, first and foremost, you must pray for all kinds of people. Let there not be divisions amongst you. He says this in verse two, for kings and for all who are in high positions. The reason that he says this is because he's, he knows who he's writing to. He's writing to the little people. He's not writing to kings. He doesn't, he doesn't know of any kings that are, that are in his church at Ephesus, right? He's saying all of you little people that might be oppressed by these governments that are above you might feel as though they're far above you and that maybe they're putting some pressure on you. All of you need to pray for it anyone and everyone, all kinds of people, even those who might be oppressing you, all kinds of people. I've just lost my little windscreen again. We're going to leave that thing off of there. All kinds of people. He says for kings and things like that because he's making a distinction between the people that he would have been talking to and those whom they might not have prayed for. Again, I think this is a simple point that we can look at here and go, okay, let's see. Does our practice line up with our theology? For whom do you pray? Ask yourself that question. Like when you think of your prayer life, for whom do you pray? It's easy to pray for friends and family, people that are close to you. Maybe it's a little bit more difficult for some. Maybe the question isn't just for whom do you pray, it's more for whom do you not pray? Do you have a hard time praying for some people that might have wronged you, that might sit in positions of authority that you don't agree with? Do you have a hard time praying for certain individuals, for certain types of people. Maybe you think that some people are a little bit, you know, 
beyond saving, and so it's a little hard, harder to pray for them. You wouldn't say that. You might confess with your mouth that God can save anyone, but you've neglected to pray for those people that seem hardest to save from your perspective. For whom do you pray? This is all founded upon this idea of unity, but it is a great point of application and, and really one of the, the major points of application that I want you to walk away with today. What's your prayer life look like when it comes to all people, all kinds of people? I know I'm convicted in this. Like I read this and I was like, man, I neglect to pray for people in the government often. I really should do more of that. I've seen, you know, I, I hinted at it earlier. I've seen a lot of weird patriotism in Christian circles. And yet, and so I, I respond to that, I react to that really at times by not praying like I should. Maybe we need to find a, a true and better way. For whom do you pray? Maybe you've got some people in your lives that they've hurt you. They've done bad things to you. They've, they, maybe you've come into conflict with them. Do you find it hard to pray for them? Maybe those are the, precisely the people that you need to be praying for. Or maybe like, it's just altogether neglect. You've forgotten about people groups who are, who are out there and no one has any contact with. You've forgotten to pray for them. You've forgotten to pray for certain groups within your, like that are maybe outside of your sphere of influence personally, but not outside of God's sphere of influence. We should pray for all kinds of people. Why? Because salvation is for all kinds of people, even those who might oppress us now, even those who might have hurt us now. God can save absolutely anyone. First Timothy 2, 3 through 7, which includes the verses we just read, gets to that. It says, this is good that you should pray like that. It's good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I'm not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. The first bit of this passage, I think, is relatively clear that we're not talking about all people individually. You cannot pray, as a human being, you cannot pray for all people individually. Okay. Likewise, this passage, as it says, who desires all people to be saved... We're not talking about God desiring something that he can't accomplish, that he's powerless to do. Because we know that some people are sent to hell in judgment. Yes? God is not powerless to save those people. He cannot be. If God is omnipotent, he cannot be powerless to save them. What he's saying here is he desires for all kinds of people, just the same way he was, that Paul used it in verses 1 and 2, all people. He's using it here, all kinds of people to be saved, no matter what the distinctions are between them. He's saying, I want all kinds of people, not, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well, which is, again, why Paul follows this up and says, I am a teacher to the Gentiles in faith and truth. 
Why would he follow it up like that unless he was talking about all kinds of people, not just all people individually? He's saying all kinds of people can be saved. And there is one God and one mediator for every single kind of person. There is one way of salvation. No matter where you came from, what you've done, no matter what ethnicity you are, no matter what socioeconomic status you have, there is one God and one way of salvation. And because of that, we can pray for all kinds of people and we can desire the salvation of all kinds of people. See, this passage isn't talking about all kinds of people without, uh, or, or all people without distinction. It's talking about all kinds of people without distinction because God truly desires all people to be saved all kinds of people to be saved, even those who might oppress us now. Again, back to this idea of the unsavable being saved, the unsavable being prayed for. Paul himself is, a, is an example of this. Consider what his life was like. He was, from a man's perspective, unsavable, putting people to death because they believed in Christ. He looked unsavable. He was an oppressor. You talk about oppression these days. Paul is heads and shoulders above the sort of oppression that we commonly talk about in our culture today. He oppressed God's people, but God didn't exclude him because he was awful. Paul was included in that all kinds of people. So likewise, we must never exclude someone from our prayers or even praying for their salvation, even praying for their good even, we must not exclude them simply because they seem too far gone or we just don't like them too much. We have to pray for all kinds of people without distinction because there is only one gospel. Again, look at verse five. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is one God, one mediator, one gospel, one way to be saved. Therefore, we pray for everyone. We desire that God would save all kinds of people. This also means that there's one people of God. Now, some people believe that there are two peoples of God. There are the, the Israelites or the Jews, and then there's the, the church. This is not the case. This is one people of God unified. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, nor is there slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And we're going to get there in a minute, talking about male and female being a form of diversity and unity. But I want to, want to show you this to be clear. There is no distinction in the church as far as the way of salvation, as far as our relationship with God and our value before God on the basis of sex, social status, nationality, or ethnicity. None at all. There is one way of salvation. It is through faith in Jesus Christ. When Paul here in, in Galatians 3.28 says there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, he's saying, look, there is one way. And this is really, like, I know I'm belaboring this point, okay? But I want you to, to, to see that and, and let that be a core principle that you adopt in your life as you move to application. How do I pray for people? How do I seek after their good? How do I preach the gospel to one person or another? How do I decide to whom I should preach the gospel? 
How do I decide who should come to church? The answer, anybody, anyone. Because God can save anyone because there is no distinction being made upon any of these things that might otherwise divide us. Like I said, just because there is no division doesn't mean there isn't diversity. A lot of people use uh, Galatians 3.28 saying there is neither male nor female to point to, well, like, obviously, like, sort of non-genderism is a thing. That's not what Paul's saying here. We have to read the scripture in context, okay? We have to be careful that we don't grab this out of context and go, oh, look, Paul said there's neither male nor female. Therefore, like, no one should ever have a gender, or it's just completely fluid. That's not what's going on here, and we're going to get to gender roles in a minute. But I want you to see that it's simply a distinction about who is in the church, all kinds of people. And this church, as we move forward, we should continue to adopt the, the kinds of people that, that are reflected in our community. We shouldn't just reflect us. We should look at our community and go, like, who, who's out there? What's, what's the proportion of, of people that, we should, we, that, that are reflected in the community, and, and why don't we reflect that? What's happening here? Like, are we just doing a bad job of reaching a certain socioeconomic status? Are we just reaching to the middle class? Or should we be reaching to the, to the lower class, whatever you want to call that? Or do you want to reach to the, to the upper class? Like, it doesn't matter. We need to find ways to meet all sorts of needs, all sorts of people. God doesn't care what their socioeconomic status is. They all need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want this church to reflect that as we continue forward. To the church is unified because God is one and provides one way of salvation for all people. And that leads us then how we should behave toward each other when we come together in worship. 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 10 says this, I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Interesting that God, uh, that God through Paul, as he inspires him along, begins to, he, he says, you're all one, and yet begins to start making some distinctions in, in diversity within the church. What a wonderful thing. It's, it's really the beginning of a diatribe on male-female roles here. But like, obviously, like, anger is not male only. <laughs> and and uh, provoking others to jealousy is not female only. But Paul's really starting to, to sort of hint at the idea that men and women are kind of different, typically speaking. And he's going to get to how men and women are absolutely different in just a moment. But I think that it's important that we understand the, the sort of unity that we're talking about here. Again, like I've, I've used the illustration of, uh, uh, of music in just a minute ago, and uh, I just wanted to think about family dinner now. All right, what does unity look like at family dinner? I'm about to go to Kevin and Debbie's house for family dinner. Um, how, could, how could this go? What does unity look like at family dinner, and what does disunity look like at family dinner? This is dangerous. All right, what might disunity look like at family dinner? Well, 
It might look like picking fights, right? I mean, nobody's ever gotten into a fist fight at family dinner before, so like, I'm not saying this is what happened. But <laughs> uh, you, could, you could poke at sore spots. You go like, I know that this is kind of rough for you right now, so I'm going to just poke it. Uh, you could uh, fight to get your own way at family dinner. You guys have been to family dinners before. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like, er- like everybody wants to go first at the dinner t- table as opposed to just sort of waiting to go last, right? Like, you can uh, insist on certain, you know, preferences, things like that, and never take other people into account. You could uh, need others to stroke your ego, right? If I don't get enough attention at family dinner, maybe, like, I get a little upset and just leave because I'm not getting enough attention, right? Um, you guys know what I'm talking about. Like, the, there's, like silence is also a way that you can have disunity, like, because you're, you're, you're worried that, like, fights might break out. <laughs> like, that's disunity, right? People just sit there going, like, I can't say anything because I know the person next to me is going to say something back. And so we just sit here in silence. You've been there. I'm not saying I've been there with you guys. It's okay. Um, <laughs> but what might unity look like with, with, at family dinner? Consider that. Think about your families, how you would want that to be. What's, what's perfect unity look like with your friends and family? You'd give grace to one another. You'd bear with one another's weaknesses. You'd look for the good of others. You'd let other people go first. You'd prefer them. You'd share one another's joy, right? Somebody tells a story that they're joyful about. You don't go, well, I don't care about that. No, you go, oh man, like I'm so joyful that that gave you joy, right? You don't have to personally have any vested interest in that, but you can be happy for them. That, that, that feels like unity, you have pointed discussions even on difficult subjects that are for the good of everyone. You can do that in unity. You can walk away knowing that there is still love and grace being given in the midst of that. How amazing, right? That's like, if you get a picture of that, what that might look like, I know maybe you, you're like, I've never had this at family dinner, I don't know. <laughs> But if you, get, like, if you could just get a taste of that, like, that's what the church is supposed to look like as we approach one another. Paul says that he desires in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands. What does this mean? Does that mean that we have to pray with our hands raised all the time? Actually, praying with your hands raised is a wonderful posture for prayer. I would encourage you to do it if you, would, if you so desire. But I, I don't think that he's laying out like this legal sort of posture of like, you must pray with your hands raised. No, he's saying, pray with holy hands. That is, hands who have not put themselves to evil. Likewise, he's saying that men should not approach prayer with anger and quarreling. All right, guys. Let's be real honest. We like to fight a little bit. Like, we want to win, right? Like, there's that little, like, I, I mean, whether you actually do it or not, there's that thing in you that just, like, if somebody makes you a little angry, like, there's that little thing in you where you're like, I could just, and that would make me feel better. All right. That's sin, all right? Just <laughs> calm down. <laughs> All right, but like, 
but seriously, like, that, like the reason that Paul is drawing this out here for men is because that is a very male sort of stereotypical male sin, right? We should raise holy hands. We shouldn't raise hands and fists, but raise open hands in prayer. We shouldn't quarrel with one another. Even if you're having a discussion or a disagreement with someone, you should lay that aside for the, the good of the body. You should understand that there is love there. That's the important part about the family dinner thing. What do we have in common at family dinner? It might not even be blood. It's love. We love one another. That's why we can have unity at family dinner. It's the same thing for the church. We must have love. Look, also means that if, even if you're angry at your, your brother and you're, you're, you're like, man, like, I don't know if I can go to worship with this guy right now. Even if that's the case, you think you're justified in your anger. You need to lay that aside when you come to corporate worship. You need to seek the good of your brother, maybe approaching him in love and care for his good rather than getting your vengeance is better. Even if you think your anger is justified, approaching in love is always better than approaching with fists or words. I mean, some of us like to cut, right? This isn't just for the guys. Like I said, I mean, ladies, you can be angry too. We know that. <laughs> if you're married, men, can you say yeah, amen? Yeah. <laughs> but again, he's, he's getting at this sort of stereotypically male sin here. He also speaks to women and says that women should come together in the corporate gathering without provoking one another to jealousy. He says, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Provoking one another to jealousy, according to Paul, not me, is a quintessentially female sin doesn't mean that guys can't do it. I know they can, right? You roll up in your Bugatti, and uh, the other guys are going to go, man, all right? You, you can provoke one another to jealousy, all right? But this is, in Paul's mind and in the mind of God, as he inspires Paul to write this, a, a more stereotypically female sin. Like I said, it, it, this, is, this isn't about just modesty as it concerns... Uh, like not provoking someone else to lust. Like a lot of time we talk about modesty and that's the, that's the sort of, that's the bubble we put it in, right? But this, this sort of modesty that he's talking about here, and, and believe me, there are plenty of places where we can go to talk about that, all right? But this particular passage is talking about modesty for the sake of not provoking another person to jealousy. To look at another person and go, I, I know that if I wear this, they're gonna feel this way, or if I do this, they're going to feel this way. I'm going to provoke them to feeling like they're less. It's that underhanded sort of like poking that I was talking about earlier. Modest dress that, that isn't intended to draw attention allows your good works to shine through on the outside rather than it being hidden 
by the loud stuff you're wearing or doing. It's a wonderful application for men and women here. But I've seen this a lot in, in female circles, right? You get a little one-upsmanship. And it's very quiet, right? But it happens. Ladies, can you attest to this? I get, I got, I'm getting one nod. That's okay. Yeah, it happens. Um, so, and, and a lot of people, you know what happens? When I talk about something like this, a lot of people are like, well, I can't help what other people think. I just do what I want. All right, look. I, I, it, was, uh, it was the you version passage of the day today. Don't let your freedom be to your brother's detriment. That's the, that's the Greg Snyder version. All right? Like, just because you can't control what someone else does doesn't mean you can't take them into consideration in what you do, where you go, how, how you do different things. But in both of these cases, and I want to kind of sum it up with this, self-control and consideration of others is the core principle. Think about it. Anger leads us to being out of control, being mad. That quarreling leads us to taking sharp words to one another. Provoking one another to jealousy is, a, is an issue of self-control again. It's an issue of considering others. How do I, like, again, like going back to the, the anger piece, like how do I approach my brother with whom I am angry, with whom I am maybe justifiably angry? How do I approach him in love rather than letting that anger drive what I do? Let me be self-controlled. And perhaps as I'm self-controlled, I begin to let go of my anger. It's a way to be justifiably angry, but um, John Piper is quoted as saying, like, I'm not sure that we can do it. <laughs> it happens, right? Like we, sometimes we think we're justifiably angry, but it's really hard to not mix that with sin. So better not to be angry, better to let that aside. And again, this, the core principle that we're, that we're looking at here is the self-control and consideration of others. And maybe that boils up to this idea of decency and order as we come before God. When we come before God on a given Sunday, at, together as the assembly, the church, we need to practice decency and order toward one another so that we can glorify God. But the rest of this passage is, is really one-sided to a large degree. Um, I have to admit that this is a hard, hard passage. The rest of this, if you already read ahead, uh, is, uh, is a, I'll get there in a minute, but it's a hard passage for our postmodern minds. Um, and it's, honestly, it's hard for me to preach because like I said, it's a little one-sided. As a man who values the women who have supported me and ministered alongside me, like I never want anyone to think that I'm devaluing a single one of them. But at the same time, I, as a pastor and more basically as a Christian, I am bound by conscience to accept and cherish what the word of God says in its totality, including the distinctions that God has made between men and women and this distinction isn't merely biological, it's functional as well. We see this in this passage before us today. Let me read it. 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15. 
It says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. All right, God said it, I didn't. But I'm going to talk about it. These five verses probably deserve a sermon of their own. It's just we have a certain cadence that we're trying to work through First Timothy at. We'll get there eventually. We'll, we'll, get, we'll come back maybe in community groups or something like that. We'll have some longer discussions if you, if you desire. Um, but let me just say this. I, I know that many arguments have been made that seek to undermine the application of this passage outside the church at Ephesus. Right? So some people come in and they go, well, this was just a cultural thing for the church of Ephesus, and this is, this is the only place where this applies. And that actually might hold some weight if you were looking at just this passage and didn't look at a passage like 1 Corinthians 14.34, which again encourages women to remain silent in the church. Furthermore, depending on how you divide the ambiguous Greek sentence structure in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 14, between verses 33 and 34, Paul might actually be furthering the point in saying that uh, this mandated silence was and should be the case for all the churches of the saints. Y'all feeling uncomfortable? I'm feeling a little uncomfortable. 1 Corinthians 11, though, speaks about women praying and prophesying. So we go from 1 Corinthians 14 that says women should be silent in the church, and then we, we get this other passage that says that women are, are allowed to, to pray and prophesy. And then even like earlier on in the, in the course of Christian history, Paul, or Peter says in Acts 2, uh, he quotes Joel 2.28. He says, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. So obviously there's some, there, there's some nuance that we need to find here, right? Like, it's not mandated absolute silence all the time in every circumstance, right? But, like, we can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater here. You can't say, well, because women are permitted to prophesy in one place, a broader mandate for silence means nothing at all. So we've got to figure out how this, how this works. And before I go too far and I, and I forget to, to mention it, um, submission in this passage is not a dirty word, right? Submission is almost always seen as a terrible thing. And, they're like, and people are like, well, I don't submit to anybody. I'm my own person. And well, yes, you are your own person, okay? But we all submit, all of us, right? We all submit to one degree or another. Christ submitted to the Father even. That does not make him less God. He is equally God and yet he submitted to the Father. I wish Ashley was in here, but uh, I would also say that like, my, my wife submits to me, as other places in Scripture would, would have her to do. And I think if she was in here, I wish that she was, she could give you guys a head nod. Uh, but I told her that I was going to say this yesterday, and she was like, that's great. So um, you can talk to her after service. My wife submits to me, and she can affirm that it's good. 
because she is more precious to me than my own life. For me, like that idea really hits close to home when I think about submission even in the context of the church. The idea that I would protect and cherish my wife, not because she is less, but because she is more. Like, she is precious to me. Like, I have more authority in my home. I make the final call if we're at an impasse. And yet, at the same time, that authority makes me no more valuable than she is. She's just different. We're just different. We have unity and diversity. This, this passage, though, isn't really about gender roles in marriage. Uh, but I, I really want you to see that God's design is good. I mean, you can, you can come and, and hang out at my house and you can see how my wife and I relate. Like, it, it's a good thing how we interact with one another according to the principles that God has given us in our marriage. But I, I want you to see that by leading my wife and by, by guiding our household and cherishing her and working hard to provide her everything that she needs, I affirm her intrinsic value. I don't devalue it. And likewise, by some supporting me and submitting to me and making it and working hard to make it possible for me to accomplish what we've set out to do, she affirms my intrinsic value not only as a human being but as a man. And I hope that you guys feel that, that that's a good thing. If you don't, I want to have further conversations. That's okay. But, like, I hope that, like, if you know me well enough at this point, like, you can affirm in my life, like, that's a good thing for Greg and Ashley. And that God's word has formed that. And so, likewise, we must insist that God's word, as it concerns women in the church, is also good. So let me try to break it down a little bit. Paul makes it clear here from the creative order that godly men are to lead and teach in the church while godly women submit to that leadership and teaching. I'll say it one more time because that's the main point. Paul makes it clear that the creative order is that godly men are to lead and teach in the church while godly women submit to that leadership and teaching. Okay, hard stuff, right? I want to say this does not exclude women from all teaching or all authority, but the official teaching of the church and the final authority of the church is reserved by God for qualified men. I want to make sure that that's, that piece is clear too. Qualified men. Submission to ungodly leadership is never required in the church, all right? Never. So if you have ungodly leadership, that's a whole different deal. What does that mean for us, though, as a church? It means that the, the Sunday pulpit is reserved for qualified men. That's one thing. We also believe that it's often best for men to teach in mixed groups, but there's certainly room for women to teach and share before mixed groups in unofficial or non-authoritative capacities. We think of think, like this, this idea of authority and teaching as it's almost a perception thing. It's, it's, it's hard to draw the line super hard outside of like Sunday morning public worship. 
but we like we would be willing to consider things outside of that. But like I said, it's a it's a question of how much perceived authority is in the position, right? How much perceived authoritative teaching is happening? And so we would make those calls on a on a case by case basis. Personal discipleship in the context of families and small groups, though, is on the table. <laughs> Always should be for every single Christian, no question. Okay, every single Christian. Every woman that's sitting in this room that hears the, the podcast that ever loved Jesus is mandated to preach the gospel, which is teaching, and to disciple her family. Yes, men should lead in the family in that discipleship, but what's a mom to do but to disciple her children? Look, I mean, there's, there's definitely hard stuff here, Right? But there is like diversity between men and women. We have to see that in this passage and in the scriptures. And this diversity, when placed alongside the unity that we have in Christ and as Christians, then men and women, godly men and women, can exercise their God-given gifts in the roles that he has given them. And it leads us back to the creative order. Look, I, again, I, this stuff is hard in our culture because the, the deconstructive nature of postmodernism has said gender roles aren't a thing at all. In fact, gender is almost not a thing at all. Like maleness and femaleness mean nothing, perhaps outside of your biology, but maybe even including your biology. And even the church has embraced some of the lies of that culture, of the external culture. We've been influenced to believe that men and women are equal in value and function. The function part is the hard part. A lot of churches affirm that men and women are equal in value and function. Mosaic affirms the former. Men and women are absolutely equal in value. But men and women are not equal in function. We aren't, we aren't equal in responsibility either within the church or the family. Different. Core differences. In fact, differences that I would argue make the church and the family far, far better when followed. That might lead some to the conclusion that, that men should rule over women with an iron fist. May it never be so. May it never be so. Look, I, I've seen this way too many times in my own pastoral ministry where I talk about complementary relationships. You'll hear me use the word complementarian sometime. That's what I'm talking about. Male, female, different but equal in value, right? I talk about complementary relationships and the guy in the relationship goes, oh yeah, it's my job to rule my family with an iron fist. My wife is now inferior to me. Seen it. So men, that's not what's going on here. And if it ever looks like that in this church, something is terribly wrong and church discipline needs to happen, right? If you look at, at Pastor Brandon and I and you go, Man, like how he is treating women, how one of us is treating women is devaluing them or demeaning them in any way. Somebody needs to say something because that should never be so. It shouldn't be so in the family and it shouldn't be so in the church. But 
Men were created to lead in the church. Male headship finds its roots not only in just common sense, like in that, you know, Paul didn't just leave it here. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather, she is to remain quiet, period. He says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And he goes on to talk about the creative order. We're getting back to the creative order. See, Adam was created to lead, and Eve was created to submit to his godly leadership. But in the fall, both failed. Right? He talks a lot here about how Eve transgressed. But I think that the rest of the Bible talks very, very loudly about Adam's failure. See, if Adam had been leading, then he would have rebuked Eve and sent her away with that fruit. And if she had been submitting, she would have come to her husband and said, hey, should we disobey God? If one of those two things had been true, something very different would have happened, but both failed. Adam was created to lead. This stuff, like I said, this is hard in our culture. But we have to fight to keep complementary relationships in our marriages and in our churches. That means godly men need to step up and be the, the spiritual leaders that we are commanded to be, both for our families and for the church. Because it is not shameful when a godly woman stands up to teach in the church when there are no godly men. It's not shameful for her. It's shameful for the men who are sitting in that congregation. Look, this is, this is hard stuff in our culture, but it is good. It is freeing. It is good, I promise. Try it. Give it a seven-day free trial. Or just come to this church and you'll see how it works. Whether we're talking about gender roles or resisting the, the temptation to fight or to provoke one another to jealousy or just simply wondering who to pray for, then we must have a firm foundation in the one God and one mediator. Because only then, only when we accept and, and practice that unity can we operate within our diversity. And it's a wonderful thing when we do. As we move forward as a church, we must embrace this idea of unity and diversity. We are different sexes, different backgrounds, different socioeconomic statuses, different ethnicities, and rather than letting those things divide us, we must use those things in order to further the kingdom of God. As we move forward as a church, we are going to practice, and we have practiced, these complementary relationships, not only amongst men and women, but amongst people of different backgrounds, different... I mean, I, I, I like to talk about music. This is, this is not in my notes at all. I like to talk about music, so I'm going to do it again. When you, when you get a band together of, with people of different backgrounds, different influences, and things like that, it's better music. It's far, far better music. The same is true of the church. If we can bring people in who are not like us, it's, it's better when we start going, oh, like, you have this experience over here. You have this gifting over here. We could use that in this way. How cool is that? Like, that fits. And so God ultimately pieces us together in all these diverse relationships that we have 
and makes us a mosaic. Had to work the church name in, right? But that's, seriously, like, that, that's one of the main reasons we called the church mosaic, because God takes broken people of all sorts of different places and backgrounds, puts them together in a local church, and it becomes an amazing testament to his glory. And so today, if you're, if you're thinking, man, like, I don't know if, I, if, I've, if I've really accepted these wonderful truths that God ha- has put in his word, or I haven't prayed as I ought, I haven't, I haven't maybe like, accepted others or, or gone after certain people because I thought that they were too far gone, maybe today is the day to repent. Maybe today is the day to, to turn from those things, to accept our unity under Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that by faith we are saved. We trust in him. Confess your sins before God. If you haven't been living like God's word has told you to live, lay it at the foot of the cross. He is faithful and just to forgive. Turn from your sinful ways and trust in Jesus Christ. The gospel not only unites us but it gives us a a balm that heals all wounds, that heals all sins. I'm praying that, that God is going to continue to help us to walk in unity under that gospel every single day and let that orthodoxy lead to orthopraxy. Right belief to right practice. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.